Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. We've got a belter for you today. I'm not going to drop any spoilers, we're just going to jump straight into this one. I'm joined by Nino Strachey. She's a writer and historian, graduate of Oxford University and the Courtauld Institute, and is a former curator for the National Trust and English Heritage, and is the author of Rooms of Their Own and Young Bloomsbury. All I will say in terms of what we're looking at today is we're going to have some surprises and some revelations coming over the course of the next hour. I'm really looking forward to this. Nino, great to see you. How are you doing? Welcome to History Hack. I'm good today and delighted to be here with you talking about Young Bloomsbury. Okay, let's let's dive straight in, shall we? Um, and start with the basics because some folks won't be familiar. So the Bloomsbury Group, what's it all about? Okay, so, well, the Bloomsbury Group were a group of writers, artists and thinkers who came together in the early years of the 20th century to really to imagine society differently. Um, And I think today we would think about them as a family of choice, a group of queer friends and allies who came together to support each other. And what was lovely about what I began to find out more about them was how they nurtured a generation of new young queer creatives in the 1920s. And what brings these people together? Let's talk, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the new generation in a bit, but I think we probably should sort of just probe a little bit into the, the inverted commas, old generation. What, yeah. what was the reason for them coming together in the first place? Who kind of instigated that? What sort of reputation, I guess, did they have as well? Well, I think what was interesting is that before the First World War, they probably had a re- reputation as radical outsiders. Um, we're talking about, obviously, biographers like uh, Lytton Strachey, but most well-known today would be writers like Virginia Woolf, Ian Foster, 
artists like uh, Vanessa Bell, Duncan Grant, Roger Fry, and of course the pioneering economist, John Maynard Keynes. Um, and uh, it, really their reputation before the, the world, First World War was, was as outsiders because these were people who were trying new things in a way that we, we would be surprised us today. I mean, that they were people who were known for having unusual ideas rather than for being successful. Um, particularly in the art world, they were tra uh, championing post-impressionist art. And this was before uh, Picasso or Gauguin or Matisse or Cezanne were known at all in the UK. And people just thought what they were suggesting was extraordinary. I mean, Virginia Woolf said that people saw the real and were shocked you know, and stepped back. Um, and so, I mean, I suppose between the before the First World War, of the group, the uh, uh, only, of the writers, only Ian Forster was successful at that point. The others had yet to make their way. And what what's the reason for them coming together as a whole? You know, is this kind of people with, with similar thoughts just kind of by luck finding one another? What's the reason for this this group kind of coming together? Well, many of the core original group uh, came that is the male members came together at Cambridge University and particularly were connected through the Apostles Society where they were reading um, and debating aloud together. Uh, but then in London, what's lovely about this is that what, what drew them together it, across gender groups was um, uh, Vanessa Bell and her sister Virginia Woolf living with their brothers in London, bringing together a group of men and women who would discuss pretty much anything under the sun at a time when men and women didn't talk about stuff openly together. And they certainly didn't talk about queer lives. And that was, again, was really unusual about this group being supportive to each other in every respect, talking about art, sex, religion, philosophy, politics, you name it. It was up for grabs. And you talk about how this group is kind of seen as the outsiders. Mm -hmm. This is a time when being an outsider in society can be quite dangerous. You know, not only are you talking about stigma, you're talking about um, potential financial repercussions because people won't, particularly within the arts where patronage is a thing, you may find it hard to acquire patronage. So what's, what's life like for them in terms of having to deal with the stigmas fundamentally that people have about the way in which they're living their lives? Uh, and is it kind of a dangerous existence? Well, I think obviously you are continually open to the threat of prosecution uh, if you're a man during this period. Um, and were, uh, it was impossible to lead an open life. So I think what was great about this group and how they were able to be mutually supportive to each other before the First World War is that they could be open and honest within closed doors um, and therefore could help uh, support and enable each other to be creative in the ways that they needed to be, but not necessarily in any way that could be shared with the outside world, at least not at that date. No, absolutely. So that's the old generation. Mm -hmm. The new generation comes along. What's different about them then? Because we've already got a group of people who are very sort of what we would today think of as absolutely ahead of their time. You know, these are people who would be hugely comfortable in, in modern society, and rightly so. But if you've got a new generation that's different from an already kind of a generation that's already ahead of its time, what's what's different here? I think it, there was a wonderful coming together and a serendipity about the moment because you had that uh, reaction at the end of the First World War um, and suddenly you had a new generation coming through who had no respect for the people who'd led them to failure and death during the First World War and were looking for a, a different future. Um, and so you had a group of older people who were already thinking in that way 
meeting a new audience of younger people who were open to those ideas. And suddenly old Bloomsbury took off and they found a market. You had eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey selling uh, in England and America. You had Maynard's Keynes, The Economic Consequences of the Beast, becoming an international bestseller. Duncan Grant, his own first solo show in 1920. Um, and so you had people with older people who ideas were suddenly coming at the moment, and then a group of younger people who were tuned in with everything that was new in terms of media and ways of communication. So you had people in their 20s who knew about photojournalism. Um, they knew about the value, the publicity value of the gossip column uh, and the appearance in the press. They were interested in broadcasting on the radio. Uh, they were flying, they were driving, they were using the telephone, they were using any, trying anything new that was out there, nightclubs, cocktails, you name it, they were up for it. Um, and so you had the older generation whose ideas were in tune, younger people who were up for all this new publicity, and the two came together and it was brilliant, <laughs> um, helped each other. The, the new generation sounds a bit like the, some of the people who come down the pub on History Hack, if I'm being honest with you. Um, I get the sense that they'd fit in really quite well. Shall we start talking about people? Because this is the core of the book, right? And their characters, and this is what really shines through in the book. P.S. People go buy the thing. Details uh, in, in a little while. Um, but you'll find a link in the description to the History Hack bookstore where you'll be able to get it. Um, so interim publicity done. We'll, we'll do more later. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the characters and the people themselves. So tell us a bit about who the people of this new generation were. Break down a few of the, the, the big individuals. We'll, we'll leave some teasers for folks to go and discover more uh, when they buy the book. But give us, uh, say, two or three of, of the big ones. That's right. Yeah, well, it's it's so hard to choose because I think what is amazing about this group of young people is they were all so beautiful. <laughs> Not only were they physically appealing, but they were creative and they were interesting. Um, and I think I suppose I ought to pick out just a few who may, yeah, just as you say, who might be most interesting. And I have to talk about the journalist Raymond Mortimer. Uh, who Vogue described as being vivacious and transparent celluloid, which I love. <laughs> That's a description you don't get these days, is it? <laughs> I know. Uh, and what was so great about him is that, I mean, today you'd think of him as a social influencer, essentially. So he knew everybody and he was able to write about everybody. And he appeared himself in amazing photographs, dressed in the most beautiful way. Virginia Woolf used to love his Chave ties, which had like um, unusual symbols all over them. And she said he always felt like he'd, he'd be, he was on his way to a lunch party that was about to happen, you know. Um, and so he was the publicist, essentially. But he had great material because you had uh, beautiful and talented people like the writer Eddie Sackville West and the artist Stephen Tennant, um, who appear in Beaton's generation-defining photographs expressing what we would immediately identify today as non-binary identities and were absolutely taken up by the popular press were appearing on the you know the front of, of, of newspaper places like the you know the daily Exp express um the standard and were held up as being you know uh, the young men to admire of today and then you had artists like the sculptor stephen Tim uh, not stephen the, the, uh, the sculptor stephen tomlin um, who carved the definitive images of most of Bloomsbury and those the, the images that we know today. So, for example, the bust of Virginia Woolf that is her most lasting memorial and is in the 
uh, on the pedestal in Tavistock Square and in Monk's house and at Charleston and Sissinghurst and the image of Lytton Strachey that's at the Tate. So he was in a way, he recorded the figures and helped again to publicize them. Um, and then writers like Julia Strachey, whose cheerful weather for the wedding was made into a movie only a couple of years ago. So she remains alive today. And her cousin John, who was a socialist politician, but I've probably already said too much about too many of them. No, but this is really good because the, these are names that are going to kind of ring bells in people's minds, but they may not necessarily have associated with um, the Bloomsbury group. And so, you know, this kind of helps people to sort of start to fill the gaps and realise some of the connections going on here. I want to go back to social perceptions. So you've got a generation that is that has had a shift of thinking as a result of World War One as you were saying earlier, you know, this idea that we don't trust the old leadership and, and the old ways perhaps haven't worked. And so let's, let's embrace something new. Then you have the, the young generation, if you will, coming in. Does this, I'm also conscious that this is an era where you see a rise of totalitarian control, don't you? And so you see the birth of fascism, you see the birth of communism, neither ideology being receptive to the ideals that the Bloomsbury Group are advocating. So are there kind of tensions and where are those tensions played out if so? Because with so many ideas circulating, there are bound to be kind of people bumping off of one another. Yeah, and, and there's a, a strange dichotomy of the 20s um, because you have this you know, vibrant world of the bright young thing um, and this kind of uh, effervescence of the appearance of, in the press of all these, as you say, young people with new ideas uh, and new technologies. But at the same time in the UK, you have a conservative government from 1924 to 29, who are cracking down on anything that they see as what might be seen as you know, uh, public indecency, for example, nightclubs, um, and you have this, you know, is this constantly shifting world of at one point the bright young thing being celebrated um, and promoted. And at the other side, you have papers like the Daily Express mounting campaigns against the painted boy and the woman in suits who were seen as uh, propelling, you know, social uh, perversion and degradation. So they were treading this very narrow tightrope between what was seen as possibly acceptable and what was absolutely to be condemned. And what's the international perception like? Because, I mean, we're talking about the 1920s, folks who will know their history know that in Weimar, Germany, yeah. they're much more kind of open and receptive. And, and the golden age of Weimar, Germany is the years up to, obviously, the Wall Street crash in 1929, yeah. where everything changes yeah. and you see the rise of um, more extreme political ideologies. Yeah. Um, so in other nations, uh, is there perhaps a, a greater um, kind of willingness to embrace these ideas or, is, or doesn't the word kind of get out in quite the same way that we might expect? Well, I think you get a sense both in the UK and in Germany of, of as you say, that kind of rising crescendo to 1929 and then sudden falling away where you have this, what appears to be a moment of, of acceptance um, and celebration of these new ideas. And then boom, with the crash, everything clamps down and you get, the, as you say, the rise of, of fascism in particular um, and that right wing reaction. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. 
Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Action to all these new ideas that have been bubbling up, um, and and uh, and the, the end of this moment of of, of um, inclusion, essentially. I want to circle back to that because I'm curious about you know their response to this kind of fundamental shift. But before we get that, I want to talk about their life day to day within the Bloomsbury group. You know, how do they spend their time? What are they doing? Is this a case of, uh, you know, even within a, a day, what sort of timeframes are they sort of working around? Are they sort of, do you have a mix? Do you have early risers who are, you know, busy chiseling away at, at the crack of nothing? Um, or is this a case that actually you've got people who are kind of partying late into the night? I know partying is an element that you talk about within your books. Just give us a flavour of their life and what they're doing and how work and inverted commas play kind of intermingle within this group. Well, I think I have to say I got completely exhausted just reading about what they were doing all the time because I think what was extraordinary is that everybody, old and young, were working all day, every day, creatively because they were writing, they were painting, they were sculpting, uh, and they were interacting at, at, a, at a punishing pace and producing an incredible creative output. Um, uh, and But they were mixing that daily activity with mental stimulation. So Virginia Woolf has this, you know, she just gives these wonderful descriptions of how, you know, there she is writing away herself, printing at the Hogarth Press at home. She would have often several members of Young Bluth be working for her because that was part of her nurturing role, having them as assistants at the press. And so she'd be upstairs writing and then one of the assistants would pop up to have a chat with her. And then Duncan Gryant might pop over from the studio to have a chat and then another one would come over and then they'd spend an hour talking about art and music and literature and opera and, and the latest ideas. And then they'd head off back to work uh, because parties didn't start till about 10.40 or 11 at night, <laughs> which was... <laughs> so... On a typical evening, you might, for example, meet people for dinner, go to a show, then the parties would start. Uh, and classic ones, for example, there was the bath and bottle party that happened at a swimming baths where you drank bath water cocktails in your uh, swimming suit. Or Raymond Mortimer liked to have what he called his, his male evenings where he gathered beauties and often with Lytton Stretchy's help. Um, and those would start at 11 and she would, he would send these long lists of who they might invite. For example, the, one of the things he thought would be interesting was the captain of the England rugby team to add some interest um, in his massive chastity, apparently. Uh, and so, and they'd be carrying on till the early hours. So, I mean, you know, all power to them for having the stamina. I couldn't have done it. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say, the stamina required. Yeah. Um, do these parties happen often? <laughs> where, do, where do they find time to sleep? I just, I really don't know. I mean, you know, sometimes Lytton writes these, you know, Dady Ryland's one of his favourite young men. And he would talk about an evening where they, they'd start off in a taxi, maybe go to a club, 
go and watch Dady record a broadcast for the BBC, head off somewhere else later and then head off to a, a, a pub at the end of the evening so Dady could pick up a soldier. And then, you know, I imagine they were going to bed at dawn. <laughs> Insanity. Um, yeah. The other thing that really strikes me is that sometimes... Yes, sometimes it's great to have somebody sort of drop in and, and you have an intellectual conversation. And then off the back of that, you know, that's that's perhaps new ideas. Other times it's really annoying when somebody interrupts you. Are there moments when these people kind of grind on one another and just irritate each other a bit? Do we have any kind of hysteria, kind of histrionic falling outs that happen during this period? Oh, there are quite a few falling outs because... <laughs> people were radically honest with each other. Uh, and also I think what you have to get used to is the biting humor because they were constantly, as well as writing and painting each other, uh, they were writing about each other to each other, which is why they're such a gift nowadays to write about because they're sharing just everything. And Virginia's brilliant because these letters say, you know, for example, Eddie Sapphire West often was being upset and offended and Virginia then has to explain. She says, well, no doubt somebody else right now will be writing about what you've been doing with Philip Ritchie somewhere else and round and round it will be going. Um, but you know, once you get past, once you realise the humour in it, it's so refreshing to have the honesty because they could really share. I mean, share in a ways that we would find even maybe quite challenging today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They sound like an incredible bunch. Well, they were an incredible bunch of people. Um, there's no dispute in that. Just look at what they then um, contribute to society. Yeah. Let's, let's double back to something that I mentioned earlier, which is the big change that happens in mm -hmm. 1929. Yeah. Give us a little bit more uh, on kind of the nature of that change, first of all, mm -hmm. but then also perhaps more interestingly in relation to your research, the way in which they respond to that, how do they deal with this, the fact that, you know, that they, they seem to be making huge progress in terms of society embracing what they're, they're trying to encourage people to embrace and, you know, can think far more openly mm. about life. And then suddenly we sort of seem to take a step back socially. How do they respond to that? Because that must have been a pretty depressing moment when you sort of step back and see the change that's happened over a span of 18 months, 24 months and realise we're not where we were. 
Yeah, and I think you could see the winds of change coming, particularly with things like the Radcliffe Hall trial in 1928, um, which was the response to the publication of The Well of Loneliness and uh, celebrating lesbian love quite openly in print. Uh, and of course, that couldn't be attacked for being illegal because relationships within, uh, between women were not prosecutable. So the only way to have a go at it was to uh, attack the book for obscenity and ask for it to be destroyed. And of course, Virginia Woolf and A.M. Foster and many others in Bloomsbury came together to try and help support Radcliffe Hall in that case. But of course, it, it was condemned. Um, and so you, it, it, is, it is extraordinary how, you know, you have these, these forces colliding of this, the joyous openness and the kind of acceptance of the bright young thing in the press apparently, in it being fine to dress up and wear makeup for one occasion. But at this stage, if you were found walking in the street as a man with a powder compact in your pocket or were seen to be wearing uh, lipstick or possibly even wide leg trousers, shocking as that might seem, you could be arrested and sentenced to three months hard labour. Um, and those sort of things were happening not very far away from Bloomsbury. There was a dancer called Bobby Britt who lived in Fitzroy Square. And his problem was that his, he had a, a basement apartment so the police could see in through his windows and they saw men dancing with men. And so they swooped in and arrested them. Um, and the only reason that Bloomsbury were not uh, arrested during this period is that mostly their parties were taking place in first floor rooms. So the police couldn't see in through the windows and there were men dancing with men and women with women at every one of those gatherings, but nobody was, was caught. Can I just ask about the, the court case regarding the book? Mm. It always strikes me that sometimes, I, I hesitate to use this, but because uh, the best thing isn't the right word here, but sometimes uh, a case like this, where you turn around and you ban something, suddenly means that people pay even more attention to it because they realise it's subversive value. Um, and I'm thinking particularly about, you know, as a teacher in a school, if ever you banned something, suddenly it was everywhere and you knew it was everywhere, but the kids being kids and being clever were quite surreptitious about how they did it and there was nothing you could do about it. Um, is there an equivalent when it comes to this book and, and this case? Well, it, in terms of then things coming so into the uh, public like that they become more talked about than ever before. Yeah. And I think it, it's really interesting. You do get that sense, I mean, of this interest in particularly in the woman in suits and in female relationships uh, and maybe a sense of, of censorship there that you might not have, have seen before. Um, and this was something that obviously affected Bloomsbury uh, in terms of, you know, they were were very keen to, to, to bring the genders together. And there was the wonderful evening where Eddie Sackville West and Nancy Morris held a hermaphrodite party to just to celebrate that, that bringing together uh, of the genders. But I, I, it is, I think it's salutary to see the way that how that openness and particularly where that public openness faded away by 1930. And you cease to see particularly the imagery um, and the, the sense of almost being open within the press is, is, is disappearing. Uh, and Bloomsbury really begins to turn more in on itself again and to be, I suppose, pioneering through personal ways of living rather than necessarily being more public in what they do. 
Um, and I think with, for where I was really drew things to a close was with the, the tragic deaths of, of Lytton Strachey and, and Carrington in 1932, um, which really sobered many in the group. Absolutely. Um, we, we won't kind of delve in, into that because, again, people, you want to go and, and buy the book. That's, that's part of what we're doing here. Psychotherapy and conversion therapy feature in your book. I'm just going to let you tell the story, quite frankly. Um, take it away, because this is, it's, it's horrific. Um, but let's not make any bones about that. But talk us through, through this, this episode. Well, it's a really interesting moment in the history of, of uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, really in the UK, because uh, this is the 20s is the moment where Freud is really hitting the UK and you've got the British Society for Psychoanalysis starting and you've got key early psychoanalysts within Bloomsbury itself. You've got Lytton Strachey's brother, James and his wife, Alex, who were the first translators of Freud in the UK. Um, and this was a period where mainstream psychiatrists saw uh, homosexuality as a mental illness um, and as something requiring treatment. Um, and so there's a, a kind of a, a strange irony in that many of the people who we are writing about in the book are receiving psychoanalysis and getting support within the Freudian school, but are also being pressured by their families to have uh, treatments that are far more invasive. Um, and I think there's an extraordinary um, uh, set of, of people who are sent to Germany to a clinic run by Dr. Martin, who offered a cure for homosexuality, which involved injections uh, and dream therapy and analysis. And you have Eddie Sapfer West giving detailed accounts of what he was put through and what he was terrified about after, particularly after the injections that he'd never be able to write again, which is just, you know, awful. Um, and you have them coming back to the UK and just really getting support within Bloomsbury in a way that they would have not got anywhere else. And, and thank goodness for it, because these young people were helped to survive, essentially. Absolutely, and, and sadly, that is something that, that continues. I mean, famously, Alan Turing has yeah. to go through, uh, I believe it's chemical castration, they, they describe it as during that period, and it, it mm. plays havoc with his mind. Um, th there's very much a sense here about what might have been if it hadn't been for 1929 and this kind of shutting down when it comes to openness and embracing these ideas, do we have a sense of where we might be now? Because it feels as though we've perhaps regathered a lot of the lost ground now, mm -hmm. sitting here in, in 2022, mm -hmm. and maybe gone a fraction further, but still have a long way to go in terms of dealing with prejudices, which is still sadly mm -hmm. commonplace within certain sections of society. So do we have a sense or um, perhaps it's just kind of personal opinion on your, your side about where we might have been had it not been for this? Yeah, it's interesting. That how, here we are. I'm writing about a period 100 years ago. And yet how we have a group of people, old and young, you know, two generations living what feels like a wonderfully inclusive way of life affirming expressions of different gender identities, of sexual expression, living in the way they wanted to be, dressing the way they wanted to be, absolutely, um, uh, in a way that nurtured creativity. And yet we then have had a period where maybe 
not all of those things have felt so okay. Um, and ironically, maybe there's a moment right now where we are teetering again on some of those Absolutely. issues. Um, so it's lovely to be able to celebrate something that is a hundred years ago, because it just shows, you know, these, these feelings, behaviors have, have been there and it is perfectly possible to be affirmative, supportive, inclusive and lead wonderfully creative lives. Hopefully happy ones too. Absolutely. Um, there's always this saying, isn't there, about history repeating itself. And I really like what James Holland said recently about history itself doesn't repeat itself, but patterns of human behavior do. Yeah. Um, and we just have to hope that an equivalent of 1929 mm. isn't coming. Um, and I know plenty within the US in particular, um, and certainly friends that I have out there are looking with concern about the things that may be about to, to come out of um, the Supreme Court. Um, so, it, I mean, it just goes to emphasise the, the value of reading this book and kind of understanding this history um, in the hope that folks can kind of learn a, a lesson from it. I know, and it's extraordinary. At the time that I was writing the book, I could never imagine that even the issues about equality between the genders that <laughs> in the book might also be something that would be popping up again right now, just as you say. So, you know, you never know what's lying around the corner. Absolutely. Let's talk about longer term legacy. And, and there are two ways to kind of look at this. One is the, the artistic legacy of these individuals and the other is kind of the, the social legacy so perhaps if we take kind of each one separately and talk firstly about artistic legacy just give people a sense of the the staggering impact that some of these people have in terms of art and literature and so on and I think well probably today we know more about old Bloomsbury than we might about young but I think what's interesting to, to really think about that continual cultural impact, when you look with fresh eyes at the images of Stephen Tennant and Eddie Sackville West taken by Cecil Beaton, that is absolutely so in the mood of the moment and ahead of its time visually and in expressing different identities and ways of being um, in, in, a, in a wonderfully expressive way. And if you look at Stephen Tennant's drawings and similarly, um, Stephen Tomlin's sculpture is timeless and has left a permanent legacy and a memorial both to old and young Bloomsbury and interpretation of those people in a way that is so intimate and expressive of their identities and personalities. Uh, it, I think it's, it's a, a permanent legacy. And I think if you look also at Julia Strachey's writing, uh, again, there's something that has uh, lasted there. So I think these people have uh, left an enduring um, uh, impact, um, but probably one that has been more subtle than the older generation. And then in terms of kind of society more broadly and, and people's perceptions, how, if you could just kind of give us a, a sense of how much impact these individuals have in terms of trying to get people to think far more openly and be far more receptive to the fact that, you know, the, the, the inverted commas traditional way doesn't need to be the way. There are other ways of living your life. And actually just embracing who you are is the really important thing to come out of life. It's so incredibly important to allow everybody to express 
the best of themselves and particularly in terms of artistic and philosophical and whatever <laughs> expression. Um, and I think what I would like to celebrate most is almost that legacy of a positive way of living. Um, and in terms of uh, embracing uh, different identities and, and setting up patterns. I mean, it was so lovely uncovering the patterns of queer inheritance that came through with everybody and seeing what had passed to whom and how they were celebrated in terms of works of art, in terms of books, in terms of music, um, and thinking about continued communities and ways of living. And there was a lovely uh, legacy, really, in terms of uh, the home that Eddie Sackville West set up with Raymond Mortimer and two other men at Long Critchell in Dorset, which really perpetuated this idea of mutual support um, for your, your way of life and each other at a time when society could be hostile to your, the way you might want to live. We do have to sadly wrap this up. Um, we, we could keep talking for a, a heck of a long time about this, but folks, you're going to want to go and buy the book. Before we get that though, there, it was interesting to pick up on a couple of things that kind of alluded to how you got into this. One is that you keep mentioning a couple of straight cheese within this story, which possibly gives us an indication of how you got into it. But also I'm curious about the process behind researching it because you've talked a lot about all of these letters and what a kind of a rich volume of material you've had to draw upon in terms of understanding how they're talking about each other so tell us about both of those things okay well I've worked for many years for the National Trust in English Heritage researching the homes of writers and politicians and scientists and I've had you know amazing times researching Darwin and Churchill and Wolfe and whatever but I'd spent very little time looking at straight cheese um, until we were uh, working on a house called Knoll uh, in Kent which is the home of the Sackville West family uh, and one of my colleagues rang me up one day and said we've found a whole bunch of straight cheese papers would you like to come and have a look uh, and in this box was just a whole load of material related to John Strachey um, who I knew as a socialist politician. He was a minister in the post-war Labour government. He was a committed Marxist, a hero of the left. And I had never associated him mentally with Bloomsbury or with the bright young things. And it wasn't until I kind of delved into that box that I realised that he had been Eddie Sackville West's best friend at university. They'd lived together in London uh, in the mid-twenties and spent their time in Bloomsbury with all of John's older cousins like Lytton Strachey and others. And what had happened is when they'd moved out of their London flat, someone had just swept all the papers off into a box. And it didn't really matter whether it was John's or Eddie's, in the box had all gone. And suddenly there was life from the twenties in its most vivid sense and letters uh, from, from young men and young women, really honestly expressing their feelings. And they hadn't been looked at since 1926. So that's just one of the, the many little treasure troves that we uncovered while researching the book. I mean, that's kind of a joy, isn't it? That's kind of what you want as a researcher, just kind of find this wealth of material. And if there's a personal yeah. connection in there, then, then so much the better. Yeah. Um, it's no, staggering. I, I, just really lucky because, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm sitting surrounded by a whole load of straightsheet books and straightsheets tend to, what happens is whenever they have a book, they put a letter inside and you, I would just pull something off the shelf. And this, uh, you know, the, here is a letter from 
little sister packing up the house before they moved to Gordon Square. And she's returning a book back to her cousins. And, you know, suddenly you find something new and just where you least expect it. And that's been, a, again, a fascinating journey of discovery. That's really curious, actually, in terms mm -hmm. of, so most historians tend to kind of have to dive into an archive and a lot of papers yeah. are kind of separated from their original context and you get the original letter and then sometimes the attachments are in a different folder. And mm -hmm. But that's really interesting that you can kind of just pick up a book and you've got a, a very different context. Have you been quite careful to preserve that context? You don't sort of take the papers out and, and put them in a different folder. You, you leave them in situ. Yeah, I've really tried to do that. Uh, um, I think the only exception has been where um, there's a, a writer called J.A. Simmons who wrote Sexual Inversion, amongst other things. And there were a whole load of letters that he'd written to Henry Strachey, giving detailed instructions about how to paint men bathing in twilight. Um, and there were a whole bundle of them and they were pushing out the front of the book. So I've kept them separately, but I've put them in an envelope to say this is where they were <laughs> so to connect the two things. I love it. It's fantastic. Nino, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Where can people get the book? <laughs> I think in all good bookshops. <laughs> in all good bookshops. Folks, it's published by Hodder. Um, so head over to their website is one option. I, you know yeah. the rant. Buy yeah. it direct if you can, because then the author gets a cut of their royalties rather than the Amazon route where Jeff Bezos uh -huh. turns it all into rocket fuel. You know the rant. You've heard it so many times. If you can't, you know, if it's if it's buy on Amazon or don't buy the book because of pricing and so on. I mean, hey, there's a Prime Day coming up, um, so go go fill your boots that way. Um, but go buy the book, please. You can also buy it through the History Hack bookstore. The link will be in the description to this episode. Nino, thank you so much for your time. Please do come back and talk to us again uh, very soon. And yeah, it's been a great one. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market